All right, 2 Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 13. And we're going to go uh, actually halfway through chapter 15. So I'm not going to read all of that to you. We're, we're going, to, going to read some, some portions of it. Uh, but but this, this sermon is titled, The Sins of David's House. The Sins of David's House. Because what we're going to see in these, these, these two and a half chapters uh, is, is the, the result of what, what David has done several chapters prior. So if you remember in chapter 11, David has sinned, and he sinned greatly. He sinned sexually, and he sinned by murdering someone, and all in an attempt to cover up his sins. But, but David sinned greatly, and one of the consequences was that his house would suffer, that the sword would never depart from his house. And so though we saw last week, thankfully, that, that God is merciful, and that upon David's repentance, he received a forgiveness of sins. So we saw that. So God does have mercy, but the consequences of David's sin continues to play out, and, and we're going to see it on, on display, clearly on display in the lives of, of his children. And these sins that we're going to see, they are ugly. It's shocking. They are heinous. Okay, so, so just be forewarned. The, the sins described in these chapters they may make you uncomfortable, so, so just, just know ahead of time. They are ugly events that take place in chapter 13 especially. And as we see these sins, the, the one thing that I want us to take note of is, is simply the great evil that the human heart is capable of. I mean, the human heart is capable of great evil. That, that We're going to see that on display in chapter 13. And we're going to see it in David's children. So it's not David's grandchildren, it's not his great-great-grandchildren, it's not great-great-great, it's not just further down the line. This is David's children, one generation away from Israel's great king, are acting almost unbelievably. And the point is that no human heart is exempt from the great evil that we see acted out in David's house. So that's, I want you to know that the human heart is deceitful above all things. And the root of every sin we're not careful, we'll take root in our own hearts. We're not beyond or above anything that happens here. And so as we see the, the potential evil that's present in every human heart, I want us not to think, right, here's going to be your tendency as we read the, the sins of David's house, my, I don't want you to say, thank goodness that's not me. Whew, they are so bad. Those Israelites, they were so bad. David's children, so bad. Right, that's going to be your tendency. Like the Pharisee, thank God I'm not like those people. That's not what I want you to do. That's not how I want to respond. Instead, I want us to think, I want us to think, except for the grace of God, that would most certainly be me. So I want you to feel the weight of the evil that we're going to see, but I also want you to feel the weight of God's grace that it isn't you, because it could be. And the fact that it isn't is evidence of God's grace. Or, or if you are there, God's grace can reach you. Well, let's read. Uh, let's read chapter 13. I'm, I'm going to start with just reading verses 1 through 22 of 2 Samuel 13. So follow along as I read. And again, these are, these are ugly events, to say the least, but, but I'll begin in, in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, 
the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed. Pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that that I might see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Verse 7, Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and she brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. But when she brought them near, to, near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her, and he lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for the wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him, and he said, I put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So the servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and she went away crying as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now Tamar lived a desolate woman in her, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. Let's pray as we we continue. Lord, I pray that in light of the great evil, Lord, of these chapters, that we would grow in our hatred of sin as it tears apart these lives that we see. So teach us to hate sin, but I also pray that we'd be keenly aware of, of, of your grace that transforms, that's kept us and is our only hope for remaining that way. So Lord, I pray we would, we'd feel the weight of sin, but we'd also feel the weight of your grace that's been shown to us. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we're going we're gonna to work through verses 1 through 21, but, but let me show you the outline that, that I have. The, the whole outline, so we're going to go from, from, like I said, verse, verse 1 of chapter 13 all the way through verse 12 of chapter 15. So there's, there's four points. So as we just read, rape or, or um, assault or abuse in David's house. 
uh, is the first section that we just read. Then we're going to see murder in David's house, which is going to close out chapter 13. And then all of chapter 14 is going to be this, this process of reconciliation in David's house. And then finally, the, the first part of chapter 15, we're going to see a, a revolt beginning to form in David's house. And so we're going to cut off. It's going to be somewhat abnormal, the cutoff at the end of verse 12 of chapter 15. But next week, we'll, we'll see the, the momentum will continue to build, and, and that's Lord willing, we'll pick up in chapter 15 next week. So, so let's start there in, in the first section, the verses we just read. We see rape in David's house. So chapter 13, as, as you probably can tell, and, and since this is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible, it doesn't conceal any of the ugliness of human sin. It shows the depth of human sin. Uh, it, it should also be noted, it shows the reality of human suffering, doesn't it? But as we begin working through this chapter, I want to start, I just want to focus on the characters as they're introduced. So, so in verse 1, we're introduced first to Absalom. Now, he seems to be a, a, a secondary character in this event, but, but what's happening is from 13 all the way through chapter 17, Absalom is the main character. And so we're introduced to Absalom first, and it's the author telling us, this is, it's not going to involve Absalom right now, but this section is about Absalom, David's son. So Absalom is, is the first son of David that's mentioned because he is going to be the focus of this entire section. He's the one that we're to take notice of. But Absalom is one of his sons, and his sister, we're told, is Tamar. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to her later. But So we have Absalom, then verse 1 also introduces us to another one of David's sons, Amnon. Now Amnon, we should know, was, is, is David's firstborn son. So he's the firstborn of the king's son, which means he's the heir to the throne. He's next in line after David. And so the status of Amnon plays a major role in, in this chapter's events and in what's going to come in the future. Amnon was going to be king. This drives the actions of the fourth character that we meet also, whose name is Jonadab. So this man is, is actually David's nephew. So he's a cousin to all of these individuals of Absalom and Amnon and Tamar. So he's a cousin, and he's a very crafty man that we're told. He'll come up again later in the next chapter. But as it begins, we're, we're told, verse 1, that Amnon loves Tamar. We're told she's beautiful, and we're told that his love for her is so great that he, he's making himself sick. He thinks he loves her so much He's sick, and he's sick not just because he loves her, because it seems impossible for him to do anything to her. It's his sister. He's not allowed to do anything to her, so that's right for him to think it's impossible. And he's sick because he thinks, I love her so much, but I can't touch her, and I'm sick about it. And to make an important point here, the prohibition, right, you cannot touch her, should have been a guard against Amnon's sexually deviant behavior. It should have been a guard. He should have thought, I can't touch her, okay. God has commanded it. I'm, I'm prohibited from doing this. That's not, how the, that's not how the prohibition functions, but God's commands ought to guard us against all sexually deviant temptations and behaviors. God said it. That's not how it works here, though. Right? It, it would not suffice for Amnon to say, since I have a desire for my sister, since I love her, it must be good because it's my desire, therefore I can have her. Right? That won't work. That doesn't fly because he's been strictly prohibited from doing that. So his desires are not naturally good. 
They're sexually deviant, and he should be guarded by God's commands. But that's not how it works. Amnon knew it was impossible for him to do anything. That should have been the end of the story. Amnon knows he can't do it, yet he still wants it, and he's making himself sick about it. Amnon's father, right, we can, we can rewind a couple chapters, Amnon's father knew that he was prohibited from doing anything to another man's wife, didn't he? Didn't stop him. Why should it stop his son? David didn't care what the Lord had prohibited, so here is his son following in his father's footsteps. But in both cases, these, these deviant sexual desires held sway over the divine prohibition, and that is nothing less than sin every time. Every time. And it's sin here. So, so in comes Jonadab, cousin Jonadab, a smart man, a crafty man, a man who could have used his wisdom to instruct Amnon in righteousness. He's smart, he's crafty, he could have been a voice of reason in righteousness. He could have said, you must not do anything. I know you think you're sick, but, but you can't do that. He could have said that, but instead... Upon hearing why Amnon is so sad, he sympathizes with Amnon and he devises an evil plan. And I think, now this is my speculation, I think Jonadab sees this as an opportunity to eliminate the next heir, right, and, and just get closer to the top. Speculation, I say, but, but Jonadab is, is a, is a serpent-like character here, and you'll see he'll come up again. So he suggests, he hears, okay, this is why my cousin is sick, he suggests, all you have to do is just pretend to be sick. Then ask your dad, King David, to, to send your sister to take care of you. Then, okay, then, then that's, that's, that's all you got to do. And so we, we find out that's exactly what Amnon does. Upon, upon the request, David doesn't see anything abnormal about the request. He wants his sister. He, he's sick. He wants his sister to come take care of him, okay? At this point, we should probably note that Tamar doesn't, doesn't, probably doesn't see anything abnormal about this request either. And so, she, okay, dad says I got to go take care of my brother. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Everything proceeds normally. She, she's doing what she was asked to do until verse 10. Amnon says to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. Don't have anyone else bring it in. I want you to bring it in. I want you to hand me the food. Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. And so Tamar knows something's wrong here. This is not okay. Tamar realizes what Amnon is intending to do, and she is the only voice of wisdom. She raises numerous objections, so she knows what he's intending to do, and she says, first, this is not Canaan. We are Israelites. This thing does not happen in Israel. So so what, what are you doing? For Amnon to go through with his plan and violate his sister would be a wicked thing in Israel. He knows better. And so she says, what? we're not in Canaan, brother. Don't do this. She also suggests that for Amnon to go through with his plan would be to destroy not only her life, but his life also. She would be put to shame. Don't do this to me. But also consider you would be considered one of the outrageous fools in Israel. And both of these things are true. If he goes through with his plan, this is what's going to happen. And so she's objecting, yet Amnon, driven by lust, right? This reveals he never loved her. He thought he did, right? So young people, be very careful. Love can sometimes really actually be lust. It's not just young people. I should say old people too. 
Right? We can be convinced, and I think, I think Amnon was probably convinced, I really do love her. But when he's responding this way, when he's violating God's commands, and when he responds afterwards, it proves he never loved her. He did not love her. We should beware, beware, beware of our hearts. They're deceitful. Amnon is driven by his lust. He's cut off from reason and oblivious to the potential consequences. I don't care. I want this and I want it now and I don't care what you say. This is what's going to happen. And Tamar's final, final objection, which seems to be an attempt simply to, to put an end to the situation, she says, just talk to the king. He won't withhold you. Now, I don't think she really believes that. I don't, I don't think that David would actually do that. I don't think he would give his daughter to him. I think she's just saying, grasp me at straws, if you will. Just talk to the king. He'll, do, he'll, he'll let you. He'll give me to you as, as a wife. Just talk to him. Just, just not this. Again, I don't think she actually believes this. She's trying all she can do to get out of the situation. But to Amnon's shame, her indictments fall on deaf ears, and he would not listen to her. And being stronger than her, he violated her. And so Amnon's self-diagnosed love for his sister led him to do this vile thing. And it's a self-diagnosed love. It's not real love. And if there's any doubt, verse 15, which maybe is the most heartbreaking verse in all the Bible, makes it very clear that it was not love that was driving Amnon in verses 1 through 14. Right? Verse 15, his response shows it was nothing but selfish, sensual, sinful, satanic lust. It was nothing but lust. Because afterwards, verse 15 tells us that Amnon hated Tamar with a great, very great hatred. So that the hatred with which she hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And so just as his unrelenting lust for Tamar drove the first portion of the narrative, now his hatred is going to drive the, the next section. Right? So, so I, I, I'm driven by this love. I've, I've got to have what I want now. He's driven by this hate. And so Amnon, filled with hatred and disgust towards Tamar, he tells her, get out of here. Get out of here. Leave. Tamar, having been violated, continues to be the voice of reason. By telling Amnon that sending her away, this would be even worse. This would be even worse to do, to send me away, because the law stipulated for someone to do what Amnon had done, right, would have been forced to marry the, the woman. By sending Tamar away, Amnon was sentencing her to a life of shame and scorn. Right? Don't, this is even worse. Again, Amnon. Amnon refuses to listen to Tamar and has his servant drive her out and bolts the door behind her. Think about that, the, 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 the details. He bolts the door. Amnon says, bolt the door. And there she is. She, she goes. She's left, defiled and alone. She tears this royal robe or this dress, and she runs away weeping. She runs apparently to her brother's house, and Absalom immediately knows what's happened. And he provides a safe place for her to live, though she lives as a desolate woman in his house. Her life is ruined. And so when David hears about what has happened, he's very angry. Right? He's very angry. But, and we can't miss this, David does nothing about it. He's angry. He should be. But he doesn't do anything. We'll say more about that later. But, but, but so this section, verses 1 through 22, end with Absalom hating Amnon. And that, that's going to be the focus of the next section. But, but here, let's just pause. And just, I, I want to make two points of application. So the first is simply the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, these sections, these chapters are, are making this very clear that sin 
makes people do things that they wouldn't normally do. And it's because they believe what they're doing is actually good or okay. And it's because sin deceives, it lies. I mean, most basically, it, it, it lied to Amnon, telling him that, that he had a, a legitimate love for Tamar, when that is not true. He was deceived, and that drove him. I mean, I, again, verse 15. Immediately following him, getting what he wanted, flip of a switch, love turns to hate. And not just any hate, right? Remember how much he thought he loved her? It made him sick. Well, now the hate with which he hates her is greater than even that love. Sin made a promise that it couldn't keep. And when he realized that, get out. You, di- you didn't give me what I thought you would. I mean, deception is, is part of the DNA of sin. And we, we, we cannot, we cannot downplay this reality when it comes to sin. And so, Christian, just beware. Beware of the deceitfulness of sin. This is why it's good to have brothers and sisters in your life that are aware of your sin struggles. Because left to yourself, you will be taken down a path that you would never, ever, ever imagine yourself going. The second point I I just want to make briefly, I don't want to spend too much time here, is, is simply the reality of sexual abuse. The reality of sexual abuse, we, we should at least pause and recognize that incidents like what happened here between Amnon and Tamar, they're not isolated to this time and place, right? It's a human condition. It, it's, it's evidence of human hearts, sinful human hearts. And so sexual abuse and assault and things like this are realities in our fallen world. And so we shouldn't be surprised when human sin is carried out to this extreme. It, it, this is the world we live in. And there are victims, legitimate victims. There are those, maybe in this room, who've been victims of sexual assault. And we should say, I'm sorry. I can't imagine your pain. It's just the reality of the world that we live in. But we should also say, you're not alone. As a church, we want to be here for you. We want to support you. We want to know your hurts and your pains. We want to care for you. We want to point you to resources and counselors and books and all kinds of things. We want to help you. I I don't know how to help you. But you're not alone and you deserve to to be helped. Most of all, the Lord is with you. you. What happened to you wasn't hidden from Him. And so this is our world and we as a church of all places should say, come, you're safe here. And so we should be a, a source of help, but also... As members here, we must not be a church that tolerates even a hint of anything like this. Any sexual advances or abuse, we cannot put up with it at all. And so as members, let us be on guard. Let us be on guard. We want to be a culture where where anything that seems out of ordinary can be brought into the light. We don't, want to, we don't want anything to happen in a dark corner. And so if you see something or see someone, tell someone. We want things to happen in the light because when things begin to start being hidden, right, that's where the culture of a church creates pathways for things like this to happen. 
And so we want to be a source of, of help and care and support, but we also want to be a place where, where we're aware that this is the world we live in and we're going to do all we can to stop it from happening. Well, let's, let's move on. So, so 2 Samuel 13, let's read the, the remainder of the chapter. See how this plays out as, as we turn to the next section. So I'll, I'll pick up in verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to, to the king and he said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Absalom pressed him, but he would not go, but he gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. But don't fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and they fled. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments but Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they've killed all the young men, all the king's son, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord, the king, take, take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, just as your servant said, so it's come about. And as soon as he finished speaking, behold, the king's son came and lifted their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So this, this section, this, the second part of chapter 13, it, it picks up two years after the incident between Amnon and Tamar. So Absalom has hated his brother for these two years. So, so, so this incident happens. We're told Absalom knows what happened, he hates his brother, and he lets, it, he lets it simmer for two years. I mean, imagine the thoughts, the, the, the revenge, the anger that's building up over these two years. And the time apparently is right, because after two years, he, he plans and plots a revenge. Now, now just to, to be sure, right, the Old Testament clearly condemns what has happened to Tamar. So clearly condemns that action, and punishment is right, but murder was not that punishment. 
And so as Absalom is plotting his revenge, he is taking unjustified action that results in a man being murdered. Much like his father earlier. So after two years, Absalom decides it's time for payback. And so his plan is actually quite deceptive. So first he invites David to this event. There's this, he's got sheep shears, and, and every year when they, 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 they shear all the sheep, they have a big celebration. And so he invites the king to come. And so if the king says, yeah, I'll come, right? Plane's over, can't, can't carry it out this time because the king's there. He's not going to do it if his dad's there. But it's safe, I would say, to assume that Absalom knows his, king's gonna deny, his father's going to deny the request. And so after he, he says, no, 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 I'm not going to come, then Absalom can make another request, right? That, that would almost trap his dad. Okay, I already said no. Let, okay, okay, you can do this. Right? So it seems as though he's setting up his dad after he does, after David says no, Absalom says, well, well, what about the rest of the sons, especially Amnon? Can Amnon come to this, to this celebration, to this event? And notice how, how David is initially hesitant. Wait, well, why should he go? So maybe David has an inclination. Wait, wait a minute. Why him? But as David is, is portrayed regularly now after what's happened in chapter 11, David's deceived. He says, okay, okay, that's fine. Amnon can go, and he gives the blessing. He says, do what you're going to do, and and yeah, all, all the sons can go. So he gives his blessing, and they, they head to Absalom's house. And so once the invitation is secured, Absalom orders his servants, okay, once Amnon, once my brother, his, once his heart is merry with wine, then kill him. In other words, he's going to get really drunk at this party. We're going to make sure of it, remember? Like his father, he's going to get really drunk, and, and uh, he's going to do something. Well, here, Absalom says once he's, he's very his heart is merry, then kill him. And to quench any hesitance, so, so I wonder if the servants say, well, wait a minute. To quench any hesitance, Absalom says, don't be afraid. I'm the one who's commanding you. The buck will stop with me. Don't be afraid. Be courageous and valiant. Do you hear how evil this is? Be courageous. I'm, I'm commanding you, so, so do it. Verse 29, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon what Absalom had commanded. And so Amnon is dead by the command, at the command of his brother. And in the aftermath, so, so one of the sons is dead, and then maybe, maybe, maybe there, there's all these thoughts, well, uh-oh, is he going to kill all the sons? All the sons are here. So, so then there's this picture of, of all the sons of David in chaos, just riding their mules away, fleeing from the scene. Right? That, that was the, the royal choice of transportation. Okay, it's not like all the horses were taken, right? The mules were the royal the royal animals there. So, so all, these son, all these royal sons are fleeing from their brother's house. And all the chaos, word gets back to David, all his sons are dead. And so, so they're all fleeing, but, but word gets back, they're all dead, David. Absalom has killed all of them. And so David, heartbroken at this news, reminiscent to when, when his child with Bathsheba died, he, he falls out on the floor and begins weeping. But then here comes this character, Jonadab, he says, no, 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 don't, it's just one of your sons, don't worry. It's just Amnon, and, and you should have known this was going to happen because his brother hated him since what he did to your, your, your daughter. And so, so, so here comes Jonadab saying, don't worry, it's not all your sons, it's just one. So here, here's the report of good news, don't take it to heart, don't take it to heart, only one of your sons is dead. And so Jonadab, as he's speaking, his report is confirmed when all David's sons make their way back to Jerusalem. And when they arrive, notice 
when they arrived, the, son, the king's sons came, lifted up their voice, and wept. And so they show up, and they just start weeping. I mean, just imagine the, what's, the emotions of what, what they've seen and what's happened. And so they, they get back to Jerusalem, and they start weeping. And, and their father joins, and they, they, the king and all of his sons mourn bitterly for Amnon. All the while, right, there's one son missing from this, this convoy coming back, and that's Absalom. So he's fearful of returning to David. And so he, he's in exile. Right? He runs away, so, so he can't go back to the king in Jerusalem, so he's going to go somewhere else. Right? Does this sound familiar? Remember, David knows well what it's like to be in exile, afraid of the king. Well, now here's his son, except now David's the king. Well, before we, we look at chapter 14, let, let me make a, a two points of application here from, from the, the second part of chapter 13. And that first application is, is simply to note David's refusal to deal with his son's sins. I mean, he, he just doesn't do anything. So even when Absalom has fled, he doesn't pursue him. He doesn't go after him. He just ignores it. Same thing with Amnon. He's very angry, yet he refuses to take action, like Eli. Remember earlier in 1 Samuel, David has an apparent unwillingness to deal with the sins of Amnon and Absalom. In the first case, David's angry when he hears about what's happened, yet he refuses to defend Tamar and punish Amnon. One commentator says that David's conscience, consciousness of his own guilt paralyzes him. So he thinks, how can I say a word against my son when I've done a similar thing? So they say David is, is because of his own sin. He says, I can't talk to them about, I can't, I can't correct him, which may be true. David may be being well aware of his own sin with Bathsheba, did not feel like he was able to confront Amnon. Maybe may part of it, but another part was probably simply that David didn't want to get involved in the messy situation that had been created by his sons. He just didn't want to deal with it. It'd be a lot easier just to ignore it and, and hope it gets better. And the point for us is simply to recognize that confronting people right, in the wake of, of sin is not something that we're naturally going to run towards. And if you, if you naturally wake up and say, okay, who can I confront about their sin today? Right, that's a problem. But, as Christians, we have to get there. We have to get to the point where we're not afraid of, of getting involved in the mess. Because it's for the good of the person who's committed the sin. It's much easier to ignore things, but that's not what we're called to do. That doesn't make things right. It doesn't improve the situation. In fact, when sin is ignored, right, the pattern that has occurred over and over and over is that the sin actually gets worse and worse and worse and snowballs all the way down. And you can say, well, why didn't you say something then? And so we just should be aware. Sin ought to be confronted when we're aware of it, especially among members of this body. Second point to make is, is like father, like sons. The, the, the familial sins of David. I mean, we, we should just note, right, that this isn't a pattern that's set in stone, but typically family sins are passed down from generation to generation. That, that's just what happens. And this should, this should scare us to death if we have particular vices or family sins. I mean, David committed great sexual sin. Amnon followed suit. David had someone murdered for selfish reasons. Absalom followed suit. 
That's the way that things tend to work. Struggles of fathers and mothers often become the struggles of sons and daughters. And we should be aware of that. We should also be aware that we're not helpless against it. It can stop with me and with you. But if we're not aware of it and intentional about it, what, what hope do we have that it's not going to be passed down? Generational sins destroy not just individualized, but generations. And so just beware of that. Fathers, that should sober you. Well, let, let's, let's move on to chapter 14. Now, I'm not going to read, and we're going to move quickly through, through these last two sections. And so, so all of chapter 14, we, we see reconciliation in David's house. And so as we turn to this, we're not going to read either chapter 14 or the part of chapter 15, but the big picture, so what's happening here in these next chapters is we're going to see Absalom returning to Jerusalem. But more than that, as he returns, that sets the stage for his revolt and his rise. And so, so all of this is, is making the point that here comes Absalom. So 14 is how Absalom gets back, and then 15 is how he begins staging his revolt against his father. Now, we, we ought to realize that, that Absalom is probably angry at his dad. Why didn't you do anything to Amnon. You made me do something. You're the king. So, so we can't just say, well, Absalom is, 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 is totally off the rails. I mean, he has a right to be angry at what happened. He didn't go about dealing with it the right way, but, but we can at least understand his desire to overthrow his, his worthless father, as he would probably say. And so in coming back to Jerusalem here in chapter 14, the stage is set for, for his premature pursuit of his father's throne, and, and things are going to move fast once we get to chapter 15 and 16 and 17. Well, in verse 14, it's clearly stated David's heart went out to Absalom. So, so his heart yearns or aches for his son. He'd gotten over the death of Amnon, and, and now he misses his son Absalom. However, he wasn't bringing him back to Jerusalem. Maybe he didn't want to have to deal with the consequences. Okay, he's out of sight, out of mind. I miss him, but I'm not going to bring him back because then I have to do something to deal with what's happened. And maybe that's why he's not bringing him back. Maybe just rather than keep him tucked away <clears throat> so he didn't have to deal with it. Well, Joab, one of David's counselors, has a plan. And so it involves this wise woman from Tekoa and the whole plan. And again, I'm not going into de details. You can read them in chapter 14, all the details, the specifics. But the whole plan is similar to what happened in chapter 11 with David and the prophet Nathan. And so what, what the woman from Tekoa does, she's compelled by Joab. Joab says, okay, do this. Here's the plan. And so this woman tells the king a hypothetical story that mirrors the real-life situation of David and his sons. And the whole purpose of creating this story is to get King David to issue a judgment regarding the situation. So the hypothetical situation involves two sons, where one son kills the other, and this, this, this son that killed the other is being sought after by a whole clan of people. They want to murder her only son that's left. Her husband's dead, and now this son is dead, and now they want to kill her only son left. And so she, she is a, has a persuasive speech, and since this son is all that this woman supposedly has, since she appeals to David, he makes a judgment in favor. Okay, okay, I, he's safe. I'll issue a decree regarding this son that you're afraid that's going to be killed. Okay, he's, he's okay. I'm going to protect him. He can come back safely. Well, long story short, David, in doing that, issues a declaration regarding his own situation, just like the rich and the poor man. When the rich man stole the sheep, 
And David says, he deserves to die. Nathan says, well, actually, you're the man. Well, here's a similar situation. Okay, this son should be welcomed back, and he's going to be protected, right? Actually, you're the man, and it's your son, Absalom. That's a way that, that you've just said should be welcomed back. And so David realizes what, has, what's, what this woman has done, and he realizes, okay, it's Joab. Joab is behind this. In verse 21, David grants Joab permission to bring Absalom home, free of any punishment, mind you, which we'll see is a big mistake. Okay, come on back. Come on to Jerusalem. So Absalom comes home and gets his own place in Jerusalem. David says, bring him back, but, but he can't go into my presence. Bring him back, but he can't come into my presence. And then the rest of chapter 14 simply prepare us for this, this, this growing reputation, this, this rise of Absalom. After two years of being an outcast, we, we read in the, the second half of chapter 14, Absalom had had enough, and he began scheming how to get back into the good graces of his father. Did I get, was I called back just to, just to live in this house in Jerusalem, just, just to sit here and die? I mean, why, why am I back? And so he, he sends word to, to Joab, and Joab won't answer him. Joab won't have anything to do with him. So then he says, well, I'm going to burn your, your fields. Then Joab says, what? He burned my fields. I better go talk to him. And then he says, Why? Why, why can't I come back to Jerusalem? So he, he has this scheming plan to talk to Job and then to say, I, why am I here? Why did I get called back? And so eventually, verse 33, David summons Absalom and the two of them meet for the first time since the murder of Amnon. And so he's back in Jerusalem and David welcomes him. He, he falls to the ground before David and the king kissed him. So there's this reunion which leads quickly to chapter 15. Where, there, where we see the, the beginning stages of revolt. And again, we're not going to read this, but here in the first 12 verses of chapter 15, once Absalom is actually in Jerusalem and reconciled to his father, right, he begins secretly planning a revolt. And so he's going around courting the favor of many Israelites. He's saying, oh, I wish someone was, was, was on your... I wish someone was here to, to issue judgments for you. Don't you wish that there was a member of the royal family that, that could be on your team? Yeah, that would be great. And so there's, there's this conniving way when he's beginning to, to, quote, steal the hearts of the men of Israel. And so, so that's a condemnation on how he's going about this. He's stealing their hearts. It's quite evil what Absalom is doing here. He's deceiving them, and he's, he has this, this scheming, conniving plan. And this revolt, this plan, it reaches its climax as Absalom creates this false narrative of him needing to go pay a vow at Hebron. So he says, oh, when I was away, I made this promise to the Lord that, that if I ever got back, then, then I, would, I would go make this, this sacrifice at Hebron. And so David says, okay, go. And, then, and as he goes to Hebron, he sends secret messengers. Right? Again, notice the, the, the cover-up. He sends secret messengers all throughout Israel, making everyone aware of the revolt, saying, when you hear the horn blow, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Right? So, so there's this whole revolt and so, and so he's, he's building this plan, he's staging this overthrow, and, and we're gonna, where we're going to stop there in verse 12, notice how in verse 12 how it reads, and while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gibeonite, David's counselor from his city, Geloah. And so Ahithophel changes sides, he's going he's gonna to play a part, which it's interesting to note, Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. Right? So, so maybe he's switching sides because, oh, okay, I'm going to get back at David. But he sends, so Ahithophel switches sides, 
And here's the last sentence. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And so, and so the stage is set. We're going to leave it off here. And next week, we're, the action is going to grow more and more quickly. And it's actually David is going to be leaving Jerusalem, afraid of his son, in, in a matter of moments, right, in chapter 15. But th- this is where we're going to stop. And I just want to close with one final application. And, and this, this will be where we, where we end. But, it, but it's simply this. Especially with Absalom, but, but also in these chapters that, that have come before, we see the power of sin. So we saw the deceitfulness of sin, but we also see the power of sin. And so we see the, these chapters have, have evil characters. David, and he was evil. He acted very evil. And now Amnon and Absalom, right, they're portrayed in, in these chapters as the fools that they are. They're fools. And as we see these men in Scripture, these characters, especially David, but we see them, there's, there's two potential ways that we can respond. And I mentioned this earlier, we can recognize them, recognize they're evil, and assume, glad I'm not like them. Right? So that's the first way. That's not the way that we should respond. The second way, which is what I, I think how we should respond, is we recognize they're evil, and we assume that we are very much like them. That we're very much like them because, because the cause of sin that, that grew in their hearts, that led them to do those things, while, while having hopefully not led us to do those things, it's still there. And it's still intending to be carried out to that extreme. And so for us, as we see the power of sin on, on display in these examples, we have cause for caution. Beware of the power of sin. Sin unattended is like that root in your flower bed. Right? If you leave it unattended, what's ha- it takes over the whole thing. It's the root of all evil in a matter of weeks. Just let it go, and, and then it's out of control. Well, that, that's how sin is. If you're not aware of it, if you're not cautious, next thing you know, it's, it's, it's grown and grown and, and, and destroyed your life. And so we, we have cause for caution. But, but lastly, and here's where I want to end, we have cause for thankfulness. We have cause for thankfulness because as we see these examples, we ought to recognize that apart from God's grace, we're all Amnon and we're all Absalom. And so if you're not there, thank God that you're not there. It's not because your sin is less or not as evil. It's because God has been gracious to you and has spared you. We should also recognize with thankfulness that God's grace extends even to Amnon and Absalom. Now, now that's not the path they take, right? But if you're here and you've, you've gone down that path, God's grace extends even to you today. And so you have cause for thankfulness because your sin hasn't disqualified you from the reach of God's saving hand. And so we have cause for thankfulness. God's grace, what, what else do we have? And so let us be champions of that. Let, let me pray as we close.